This is Converge, a podcast from Convera. Come with us as we shape the future of finance. Welcome to Converge. Today, we'll be kicking off a series of episodes recorded live at Money 2020 in Las Vegas. For the first, we're excited to bring you a panel discussion moderated by the witty and wonderful David Birch of Consult Hyperion. The topic was perception versus reality in the changing cross-border landscape. Who, quote unquote, wins the future? This panel featured Jody Visser, the COO of Convera, Rich Klo, SVP of Emerging Payments for Bank of America, Pankaj Sharma, Head of Remittances for Remitly, and Tom Dai, Managing Director and Partner for the Payments Vertical at Boston Consulting Group. The panel will discuss who will capture the most value in the cross-border payments ecosystem as it undergoes systemic change in the next few years. With a new emphasis on instant payments driven by non-bank fintechs, crypto-enabled companies, blockchain, etc., who really stands to win the war for market share, and what models and protocols will be at the nexus of this new era? Please keep in mind, and apologies in advance, that this episode was recorded in a very live environment at a major event with over 13,000 attendees, and there is some background noise, as well as a speaker you can hear in the background from our stage. So we apologize for the background interference with the episode, but we hope nonetheless that the content speaks for itself and you truly enjoy this invigorating discussion. So without further ado, perception versus reality in the changing cross-border landscape. Who wins in the future? live for Money 2020. Well, hi guys, we're here today talking about uh, what's going on in cross-border and remittance. And I'm joined by people who, I have to say, really know their stuff um, from a couple of different directions. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get each of my panelists to introduce themselves to you and tell you a little bit about what it is they're working on at the moment. And then you'll understand why it is I'm so interested in listening to what they have to say. So let's uh, let's start. Uh, I'm going to meaninglessly say clockwise, since nobody who's listening uh, would know otherwise. So, uh, Rich, would you like to go first? Sure, Dave. Thanks. Uh, my name is Rich Glau. I lead emerging payments and strategy at Bank of America, and we're really focused on a number of key efforts across everything from our smallest consumer accounts up to our largest corporates. Everything in the middle. Thanks. Jody. Hi, I'm Jody Vassar. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Convera. Convera is a B2B cross-border payments company. Hi, everybody. Uh, Tom Dyer here. I'm a Managing Director and Partner at BCG, the Boston Consulting Group, where I'm part of the payments and fintech team and lead the issuing topic for BCG globally. Hi, everyone. I'm Pankaj Sharma. Uh, I'm part of Remitly, Executive Vice President, heading their remittance business management function. Uh, and Remitly is focused on uh, C2C remittances um, uh, and, and cross-border financial services. Thanks very much, guys. And thanks for making the time to talk about this today. I really appreciate it. Um, I think I'm going to start off with you, Tom, because I know you've done a lot of work looking at the overall market and the dynamics of the market. So just for the people listening, could you give them a sense of the size of the market and perhaps some of the sort of key dynamics in the area at the moment? For sure. Uh, well, I mean, I know that a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the change, the opportunity. And I think that's all going to be good stuff. But, but it is worth us just remembering 
um, kind of what a great space this is, how large it is, and how robust it is. So maybe just some of the headline figures. There's over $175 trillion that's moved cross-border each year. When you dig down into that and you eliminate some of the sort of institutional and trading piece, there's still 40 trillion, which is let's call it true cross-border commerce um, uh, across B2B and C2C um, remittances. And that 40 trillion actually drives a revenue pool of over $90 billion, so massive space. And that space has strong secular growth. So it's growing at around 5% a year. And all of the trends that support that have been consistent for a while. Growth in goods and services spend, growth in cross-border uh, transactions, and a stable share of FX transactions in the proportion of that. So a large space, uh, strong secular growth, and of course, given the size of that space, not homogenous at all. We have to, when we talk about this space, really be thoughtful about dividing between B2B and then within B2B and C2C and within C2C. So within B2B, some of the key dimensions, of course, being the difference between large core huge in terms of volume, actually relatively smaller in terms of the revenue pool, but still critical to the banks for that broader banking wallet that they bring. The smaller mid-sized space, which has been a huge growth vector, very significant spread still, um, and uh, one uh, which has traditionally been a little underserved. And then on the C2C side, massive differences again according to the kind of consumer that's being served and the use cases. And really that comes down to the degree of access to the financial system that those customers have today. So just a lot of diversity and we can't talk about it in one splodge as it were. Right. But, but for you guys, just talking about those different sectors, is that, is that roughly what you guys are seeing in those different sectors? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what what Tom mentioned, like it's important to de-average the overall cross-border payments because the challenges and pain points really, you know, are very diverse in that respect. And the lower that you go in transaction sizes, um, the more diverse the consumer set. When you look at like emerging markets, cross-border, micro SMBs, uh, you know, a lot of cash payouts that happens within remittances as well. Um, and these, um, you know, especially when I talk about C2C remittances, these have largely been really underserved. Uh, by traditional large banks, uh, or poorly served by uh, you know traditional remittance players. Um, so if if I if I look at the uh, you know overall C two C remittance side, the uh, companies like Remitly have had an opportunity to disrupt the space because these have been largely underserved, broadly speaking. And and to be honest, like COVID has been a a really great um, you know push uh, all across within this space where. A lot of the consumer behavior is shifting towards digital and providing more and more opportunity in terms of expanding the overall pie of cross-border remittances. Yeah, what, what I was driving at this is, you know, Tom is saying it's not homogenous at all, and that's clearly true. Those those sectors have some very different, um, some very different characteristics and some very different dynamics. But overall, all of them are growing. You're seeing growth in all of those sectors. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the B two B space, it's, it's a great uh, great sector. And I'd say beyond just size, it's obviously customer needs and I'd say verticalization too. So when you're looking at creating new products and serving customer needs and eliminating pain points, you can also look at verticals. So for example, we do the education sector or we support and serve FIs, et cetera. So it's not just about size, although that does play into the cost to serve, obviously, and the expectations, because small businesses expect to behave a bit more like consumers in a very digital forward way. But you still have the mid-size and larger businesses 
that are used to more of the hand-holding and the more consultative setup, especially when you think around something like risk management and the hedging and derivatives needs. So um, I, would, I would say, yes, size does matter, but also looking at the actual customer needs within that. And some of those spaces are growing faster than others when you look across the verticals, all the different business models, because we also do a lot of partnerships uh, with embedded payments too. And I think that space is probably one to watch going forward as well. Yeah, that, the point about the kind of, um, you know, the embedded stuff, like the API and microservices and all that sort of thing, that, that is sort of changing the face of this a little bit because I think for a lot of those, the businesses that you were talking about, a lot of, like, I'm, I'm a small business, right? And so I use Xero or QuickBooks or whatever. It does seem kind of odd to me that, you know, if I'm sending some money to someone in New Zealand, for example, um, I have to sort of log out, log into another like really 2023 those things should really be coming together don't you think yeah so david i agree i, I think that uh, the way that tom laid out the different segments and the types of money movement also uh require different levels of integration with your workflow right like jody was saying there's a lot of data that has to move yeah the invoice and a purchase order to settle um, but so much of the disruption for consumer to consumer accounts i think led by companies like remitly our focus areas where we as, as a big bank have lots of consumers we think there are opportunities where if we can just transform the user experience to be better than average or compete with uh, uh, the, the likes of um, the, the emerging players that we can just retain more of our balances and engagement with our clients so they don't have to choose another provider because we don't offer buyers in Spanish or we don't offer a mobile option. So we feel like if there's more convenience, uh, we can make it better. And then lastly, because you know if we keep it all in-house and we use our you know, global transaction services organization with branches all over the world, our FX desk, that, that in turn uh, lowers the cost to serve as well. Okay, so, so just as a checkpoint there, we have a huge market which is growing it's not homogenous but all of the sectors growth. the different characteristics of those sectors actually give each of you guys uh, opportunities to deliver new products and services into that space so that looks pretty good is it fair to observe that the innovation we're seeing in that space and obviously I'm looking at you Rich while I'm saying this is it fair to observe that some of the innovation in that space is actually coming from the non-banks for sure yeah yeah I think for sure it's a fair thing to say it's a it's a very fair fair thing to say and in fact I'd say that on the whole U.S. banks were kind of okay with like here's the price for a wire let's look at our pricing strategy based upon the way all the other banks are doing it and I think that there have been, been incredible investments and solutions for clients that were underserved um, and, and they're really challenging us like we have outflows of billions of dollars a year from our deposit accounts because we don't have the right tools and solutions so it's been a great area of innovation the other thing I'd say is it's easier because you can use aliases like maybe at the time of onboarding you need all the details about who someone is that you're going to send money to a recipient but then you can use uh, an alias like a mobile number or email um, and many of the models are different but it's so much more convenient uh, and it's just as compliant it's regulated exactly the same way we are so I think that's that's one of the things that we we, we need to invest in and hear from our clients and solve those pain points so we can get better faster cheaper. 
Can I just ask, Jody? You, you came out of Western Union originally, but the platform that you're 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 building a, a platform from scratch, a new platform to handle all of this. Yeah, so we're investing a lot in uh, in our technology, underlying technology platforms. We have different platforms actually for some of the different uh, segment needs, which makes sense because they've built product historically a little bit uh, with a unique platform. But we are moving into more, you know, cloud-based. We're moving more into the ability to do API, to do the embedded payments. Um, and we really, as a non-bank, I think part of the advantage is we get to really go deep on customer needs. So we can pick off use cases and develop specific product features and functionality to help alleviate those, whereas banks are a bit more constrained around core banking architecture and they're like managing massive portfolios of spend and where to, where to put it against your um, broad product offering, whereas we get to go deep uh, and be a little bit more nimble in the way we invest our dollars and quicker to develop the technology to do this. So that's where we're spending a lot of our investment dollars. Can I just come back to Tom for a second on this? So from what you were saying earlier on and from what the bank and non-bank positions seem to be, probably there are a swathe of banks for whom it's not going to make sense to make the kind of investments that the newcomers or the or the big incumbents are making. What what are the implications of that? I think that's absolutely right, David. And uh, just like we discussed, not talking about cross border as a big splodge, you also I think can't talk about banks as a big splodge. So to your point, there are some, especially of the largest money market banks, who've actually already made a lot of investment around this, especially around digital experience, value proposition. And actually already see quite good growth about that. I think there's actually a major di uh, divergence you're seeing in the space though. If you're a tier two, tier three, tier four, now look at this space, it's coming with bigger cost and risk, especially around compliance and operations, as a result of you know quite right regulatory pressure and a desire to see a, you know, a very safe environment. And so really you're looking to other providers to, to actually pick up that slack for you and take on that responsibility of, of right. running the banking network. So, so the opportunity for some of these newcomers is actually provide the services to those banks, not directly to the end users. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like ultimately look, the reality is um, it's a it's a large space, so much of opportunity. Um, there are many players sort of innovating in this space, and the partnership between banks and non-banks is essential, supported by a regulatory framework. Right? Some of the challenges where you know when we see from a both from a cost perspective as well as um, you know how uh, how easily you can provide that innovation to the to the end users is um, uh, you know it boils down to risk and compliance side of things as well. Right? The fact that you know, banks probably would, would have to, uh, uh, you know, you find, it, find it challenging to be sort of adapting to the different regulatory frameworks across, you know, across the board. Can I just say, as, as a, as a challenge, you know, challenger in this space, essentially what you guys are, although a very successful challenger, I mean, you skipped over that very quickly, but the costs of compliance and KYC and AML and those are a pretty substantial barrier to competition in this space, aren't they? It's, a, it's actually harder to get into this space than people would think. Exactly. I think, um, you know, it's, it's the cost of, cost of um, risk and compliance within this space um, uh, to provide, like it ultimately boils down to technology solutions, right? So, you know, this is why the investment from a technology perspective to bring down those costs. So do that effectively from a risk and compliance side, do that effectively at low cost is essential. But the regulatory 
uh, frameworks play a major role within that, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. As the regulator across the globe, make it uh, slightly more easier and provide a level playing field and more consumer friendly regulations that will go a long way in terms of how technology can actually solve those challenges versus making it more operationally heavy and, and, and cost heavy because of that. I, I think there, there is a, some cause for optimism in that space though, isn't there? Because the, the technologies that we have just around the corner, I won't say here now, but when you see what's going on in generative AI, advanced machine learning, the potential to really tackle some of the, like you might call it reg tech rather than fintech, the, but the potential to tackle some of those costs, actually that's getting a little better, isn't it? So long as the regulators come on that journey with us yeah. and accept the reg tech solutions and they feel comfortable with the underlying models, et cetera, that's going to take a while. Um, you've got some regulators that still like wet signatures on documents. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're optimistic. Yes, time frame is the question. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I, I, as I say, it's not around the corner, but, yeah. but the point is that have we been having this discussion a couple of years ago without the sort of generative AI revolution we've been seeing? I think we'd be a bit more negative about the potential for reducing those costs. That's improved a bit in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that we also have to remember that technology is not cheaper than some of the things we do no, today. No. So once you set up, once you've got your licenses and you're operating and you've got your compliance tendency to scale drives that cost down, keeping on, um, keeping up with the trends and making sure you've got good relationships with your regulators and you're doing everything right, I think the reg tech will really help in things like the AML forward sanction screening um, to be able to also do that real time will be the challenge and AI I think can probably drive a lot of help there but it's going to yeah it's going to be a while hey David I, if I could add in the meantime things like regulatory reporting are using technology but you still have to have a person to review it and explain it right yeah. you still have to if you need to reverse a wire and you do it before the dodd frank tank uh, timeline or not so i think that that around the corner might be further than we expect okay uh and, and i think that one of uh the opportunities to accelerate would be a, a set of regulators whether it would be between two markets or a broader coalition to align on uh, standards that would enable interoperability across border in a new way for immediacy versus like where we started with SWIFT, which is a great framework. It served us well, but it's not disruptive, right? They've added technologies to fill gaps, but there is an opportunity at the regulatory level, I think, to yeah. standardize. Yes, I think that that's the Nirvana, which is around um, cross-border harmonization around some of the regulatory environment. Because when you're working in cross-border in 40, 50 jurisdictions, you have to customize for each regulator. And that just adds complexity into both your systems and your people management and your processes. And so that's where it's really, really hard. Excellent point. Okay, that's a good summary of where we are now. And I think I understand that. Um, let's let's look at what, it's, what we're hearing about what's coming next. So, you know, certainly at Money 2020, I've heard... I've heard a couple of points of view which I think are relevant. So I hear people saying, look, the BIA, uh, the Bank of International Settlements, uh, they're doing these experiments with inter interconnecting the domestic faster payments networks. It could be that some sort of global interconnected instant payment network is around the corner. It's an interesting point. I've heard some other people say, I mean, not the crypto crazes that we had a few years ago. Oh, everyone's gonna be using Bitcoin. You guys are all gonna be out of business. But, you know, serious people saying, well, actually, you know, we're looking at 
uh, digital assets very seriously. The ability to move digital assets without clearing and settlement is not sort of an ideological vision. It's a vision based on cost and complexity. So I can see there are other there are other ways forward floating around. What what do you guys think about some of these alternatives we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would slightly describe it as sort of woulda, coulda, shoulda in some senses when we talk about cross-border instant payments. I mean, one thing we should debate is kind of what's the value of instant and where does it apply, right? So I think in B2B, as you described, David, right, just given the, the order to kind of cash cycle and the timelines involved, the payment component is relatively limited, right? So I think the use case um, is kind of quite uh, specific in terms of, you know, through some of the specific sort of disbursement type payments which might need to be made. But, um, but, but, but otherwise, I think, you know, the track record of kind of connecting some of these instant payment networks has been relatively disappointing so far. And I think anything which involves sort of inter-regional regulatory collaboration um, just comes with a degree of, um, I guess, stasis and a sort of no one's essentially incentivized really to act and to sort of take risk to solve some of the issues that we're seeing. And, and the technical interconnection is a very different problem from the liquidity management and governance and the operating rules. Yeah, David, I agree. I, I think that we're coming to a stage where the technology is the lowest determining factor <laughs> of how we can get to faster, you know, simpler, less expensive cross-border payments. It's the regulatory framework, and then if you talk about interconnecting domestic payment networks like BIS has experimented with, um, I think the emphasis is experimentation, right? Because our, the maturity of our domestic payment networks, right? Like RTP, Anders L in the United States, and uh, the domestic payments in UK and super region, all of those have gone through these cycles where we start moving money faster then scams and fraud find a way to get in and then it resets us on how we can be more responsible about the way we do it. And I feel like as those cycles um, speed through that then we're going to be in a better place for regulation as well as experimentation across two different or maybe multiple immediate payment domestic networks. Just to come back on one of those points, do you guys see like the demand for instant or is that something that like from the technological side, we just assume that instant is the next big thing and that's what everyone wants? I mean, but what do your customers actually want? Yeah, I think, um, again, looking at a couple of dimensions over here, one is the fundamental inherent customer expectations that has grown over the years, like with the technology advancement across and various other industries as well. So the customers expect things to be faster. That is there. Um, but the second thing, especially when it comes to money movement, it's the anxiety that comes with the longer it takes, the more anxious the customers are about where is my money, right? That doesn't mean, uh, you know, we, we config that with instant, but essentially that is more about transparency and end-to-end -end tracking of where the funds are, which is where, uh, you know, it's important to actually look at that. Because if you look at the actual use cases where instant payments are required, like for medical emergencies, they are actually a smaller proportion of the right, overall right. use cases, yeah. right? So we instance in some cases, speed is in some cases a proxy for peace of mind, but speed is only one aspect of it. The trust is the other aspect of it. And as the you know fraud losses increase because of like high speed, the customer trust grows pretty fast. So you have but, to balance it out both the aspects. That seems to be the downside of this, right? The the instance sounds good, but when you sort of delve into it, it brings its own problem. Yeah, it does. Look, um, 
I would say in the B2B world, even the use case, uh, we work in a, an environment where they have net 30, 60, 90 days to pay. And so their processes are really built around there's enough time to pay. And so true, true instant uh, would be a fringe case. And from our customers' research, they're telling us, you know, pricing, um, traceability and transparency of where a payment is. And then instant would be a distant third in terms of a need. Um, it does come with other um, problems. So, for example, if you even define instant, like you still have to be able to do your sanction screening, your AML screening. And so is that technology really, up, you know, really cutting edge to be able to do it in like a second or less. And so it comes with it, other investments we'll have to put in place around being able to do that. Um, and then I'd say also, you know, when you need, uh, you know, when you really, really need this, I haven't seen pricing necessarily and costs correspond to uh, instant, like going down as um, often you price up for things. If there's truly, truly value there, you end up then doing value-based pricing. Yeah. So just, just at a higher level though, can I push you guys a little bit more on this? Because because in a way I see those two visions as being rather different in the sense that interconnecting the domestic instant payment networks is like sort of the last, you know, the last evolution of the old regime. And I don't even know if it's worth doing. Whereas serious people, BlackRock and whatever, are going pretty all in on the digital asset stuff. And I just wonder if the future isn't more around shifting digital assets around between essentially custodial you know, wallets of some form or another. Like the cross-border stuff vanishes into the digital world completely and leaves behind all of the sort of incumbent you know, legacy systems. So one perspective on that would be that what you need to believe that to have is that all the ways that you need to spend money on rent, groceries, medical, etc., will all uh, receive tokens. And I feel like it's a much higher probability that we'll move the bar in, in partnerships and experiments to speed and reduce the costs of cross-border cash. Um, the only accelerant there, the only thing that I think would, would, would happen in the interim would be as certain markets look at CDBCs and CDBCs become uh, easier to track and manage through the regulatory frameworks we're talking about, that that could be uh, an accelerant. If there really was a digital, do I mean, let's just use the example because we're in the US. So if there really was a digital dollar, like a Fed coin or something like that, I'm guessing there's millions of people around the world who are currently fiddling around with you know, Dogecoin and Davecoin and whatever else coin. Those people actually would be pretty happy to have digital dollars, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, we have to fundamentally look at from the point of view of what is the use case uh, this will solve, right? And, and what is the incremental value? Like when you, when you look at the aspects of speed, cost and transparency, I feel like from a speed and cross, uh, you know, cost perspective, when you look at cross-border remittances right now, um, they're fairly instant. Like you, you, there's a lot of progress that has happened. Fairly instant, like 90, over 90% of our transactions are within an hour. The majority of them are within minutes and seconds. 
right? Uh, from a cost perspective, that has been continuously coming down. So now the question is: while yes, there are there will be uh, you know some use cases, but fundamentally we have not seen significant adoption of these digital assets, which goes back to the point around there's a you know the uh, use cases from a customer's perspective. Uh, are not being solved fundamentally from this perspective, right? So uh, I think it's important to look at from that angle, uh, essentially. Now they will be, uh, you know, in 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 countries where there's a lot of currency volatility that is happening, then you could argue for, you know, stable coins, you know, store of value in that respect. But ultimately, going back to what Rich was mentioning, like as long as the customers end use cases utilize the the different currencies from that perspective and not utilizing the tokens of those different points then this challenge will continue so you so you think the digital asset future is a little further away I, I at least do yeah and i think really we're um, we're really debating timelines here you know because there is a i think a good uh, you know path and um, you can see that in the long term that this could create a, you know, a lot of value a lot of convenience but we're really a long way away from that today the speed of change is going to take a bunch of time if we overestimate the change we see in the near term and slightly underestimate it in the long term so to me this is the gradual evolution that's going to be on for a while okay so going back to what you guys said about where we are now, putting to one side, you know, going to Mars with Elon Musk and using Dogecoin, what is the change you see in the immediate future? What is actually happening now that you guys are looking at? If you could just sort of finish up by giving me like a little snapshot of the change you see right now. I think right now, if you look at it, like there's, there's so much innovation and progress happening in cross-border uh, payments. So, uh, for me, like I'm really optimistic, both in the short and the medium, medium term, from that perspective, and ultimately the end consumers will be the winners over here. And the companies that are able to focus on uh, consumer behavior, um, have the agility to move faster and have a product and technology first mindset uh, to solve these complexities, I think would be the winners at the end of the day. Look, there's lots of experiment uh, in the space. There's lots of investment in the space. So I think the end outcome will be customers will get a far better experience and a much more digital one. And hopefully in the back end, it drives some of the efficiencies within our networks to also clean up some of the stuff that we've been trying to do over the years. But I do think um, scale will matter in this sector. I think that the ability to keep pace with the investment required in new technologies, especially things like AI, um, there are two barriers to entry with the regulatory and compliance world here that I do think scale will matter and that the larger players will end up winning. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for smaller entrepreneurial firms who find a true niche or solve a pain point either within our operating systems or for the customer that can um, they can win by plugging into some of the larger offerings. Uh, but otherwise, there'll be acquisition targets for the, for the larger players is, is what I suspect. Yeah. I think that one of the key things, uh, two, two key thoughts. One, at Bank of America, we're really trying to drive how do we better serve our clients. Like I said, kind of fill the gap with where the fintechs have led, particularly for consumer-related payments. Uh, and then secondly, how can we use our scale um, to also advocate and engage with the various different regulatory groups or working groups on how we can remove some of these barriers to get to you know faster, better, cheaper, cross-border payments, growing the pie for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, it's, it's sort of continued innovation around the status quo and a little bit sort of rising tide lifting all boats. I think one thing you, know, you all should be proud of is just the progress that has been made 
the outcomes for customers in terms of transparency, speed, reliability, they're a step change from where they were. And I think, to your point, Rich, seeing some of the innovation that the non-banks are pushing, I think the banks learn from that, respond, use their advantages, and the outcome for customers is a, is a better experience, and that's a good thing. Guys, that, that was, thank you for giving me such a, such a terrific picture of where we are and where we're going. I, I really appreciate your different perspectives. Thanks very much. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure.